0: You are listening. Done Un- commentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies: uh, original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, she's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in the in the United States. Uh, If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. uh, That will meet all your office and party needs. Go to MySweetLifeCookies.com to place an order or if you're interested in a tray. There's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to MySweetLifeCookies.com. Check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world and I ain't lying. Hussein Ibish is a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He's a weekly columnist for Bloomberg and the National out of the United Arab Emirates, and is also a regular contributor to many other US and Middle Eastern publications. He's made thousands of radio and television appearances and was the Washington, D.C. correspondent for the Daily Star out of Beirut. Ibish previously served as a senior fellow at the American Task Force on Palestine and executive director at the Hala Salam Maksud Foundation for Arab American Leadership from 2004 to 2009. From 1998 to 2004, Hussein served as communications director for the American-Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. He has a Ph.D. in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Ibish is the author of many books, most recently, What's Wrong with the One-State Agenda? Why Ending the Occupation and Peace with Israel is Still the Palestinian Goal. Hussein Ibish, welcome to Uncommentary.
1: What a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: So uh, you are quite the scholar, Um, but how I know you isn't really doesn't seem to be related to your Ph.D., which is in comparative literature. What in the world is that all about?
1: Uh, Well, I wanted to teach English or some similar subject, and I thought that would be a great idea. And I specialized in English Renaissance poetry and French modernist poetry and a couple of um, methodological uh, approaches. But what happened is that when I was finishing my dissertation, I got a job offer that was more in terms of uh, sort of community activism and and, um, political advocacy in Washington. And I took it because I thought it sounded really interesting. And since then, I never really looked back. And I I kind of morphed in more and more into the policy world, studying uh, U.S. relations with the Middle East, And, um, you know, I never went back. So I have a, I have a PhD that taught me how to do something, but I don't do what it taught me how to do in a way but I mean, either, you know, how to do research or you don't, I mean, from an academic point. So that's been extremely useful. And certainly, uh, the job I have now is restricted entirely to people with doctorates. I mean, if you applied for the job I have and you didn't have a PhD, you know, they would just move on to the next candidate. So it is helpful.
0: Um, so you're, uh, you're originally from Lebanon, is that correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm uh, Lebanese and Syrian okay. uh, and American, all three at birth. I got a State Department birth certificate for uh, an American born overseas. That's like, like McCain and Ted Cruz, you okay. know, people who were born overseas to people who were at least one of whom was already a U.S. citizen, uh, born in Beirut. And also I'm a Syrian citizen as well. So, but I'm not naturalized. I'm just of those, you know, (laughs) countries anyway, naturally. Um,
0: So, uh, so I reached out to you because you write a lot about uh, foreign policy, especially related to the Middle East. Right. Um, And of course, that's like a tinderbox. There's always something going on out there. Um, I just returned myself uh, from Israel and spent some Mm -hmm. time uh, we were there uh, during the time that there was a lot of anxiety in Gaza, um, oh, right. and then there was actually an incident in one of the refugee yep. camps in the West Bank uh, in, right. during the same time period. Um, yep. So let's just start with what's just happened with the Golan Heights. And now right. uh, Benjamin Netanyahu seems to have made uh, a claim that he may go ahead and annex more of the West Bank if he's right. uh, elected again as prime yeah. minister. So start us off well, from there. He,
1: sure. I mean, all of this, all of it really is in the context of the Israeli election, which is tomorrow, mm-hmm. the the 9th, April 9th. Uh, and the, I think every action you mentioned was either directly or pursuant to trying to impact the result there, or at least it was in that context. I mean, so, for example, uh, when we talked about the tensions in uh, Gaza between Hamas and Islamic Jihad on one side and the Israelis on the other side, you know, the Palestinian groups in question, they know very well, they have the Israeli government's attention, Mm -hmm. Netanyahu's attention, right now very much, you know, much more than they would, or at least in a very different way like the calculations of Netanyahu uh, vis-à-vis a conflict are very different a few days away from a vote. And he's going to be very, very careful, careful not to look weak, weak but also careful not to look reckless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very important. Uh, and so they had they had this kind of opportunity to make a point and get a good deal out of these rights, which I think they did get it. They didn't didn't get much, but they got something. They got an extension of fishing rights and a few other things. Basically, nobody wanted to uh, get into a, a shooting contest right now. And, uh, you know, you can imagine if it was in two months' time from now and Netanyahu or somebody else who was safely prime minister would have been very different. Yeah. Uh, in the case of the U.S. recognition of Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights, which happened in the early 80s and has just been recognized more or less out of the blue. I mean, there's never been a debate or a discussion about it in the United States. We just um, really had a, a kind of a consensus policy that you don't acquire territory by war. That's very clear in the UN Charter, and therefore we don't really support that. But, you know, now we kind of changed our mind on that point. And, and the thing is that uh, I, I think the timing in that case is clearly an effort by President Trump to help his close friend, ally and uh, you know, the the personal friend of his family, especially the Kushner family, right. his in-laws, uh, who's Mr. Netanyahu. And, and they have a very close relationship personally and politically and in all other ways. And it looks like Trump really does not want to deal with anybody else. And he's given Netanyahu a bunch of favors. But Trump is not the only one, right, because... Vladimir Putin in Russia has developed a very good relationship with Netanyahu, and he arranged the release of the remains of an Israeli soldier uh, from uh, Syria. Uh, The very old, you know, remains. Like 27 uh, years or
0: something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: really old remains, but it's something that uh, Jewish Israelis take very seriously. And it was another big boost for uh, Netanyahu. And by the way, I'm... Not surprised that uh, the Trump administration designated the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps a terrorist group today. Uh, But again, I think the timing was it's just under the wire. It's not mainly about the Israeli election. It would have happened anyway. But, you know, the timing, I think, um, you know, I can easily imagine it was brought forward by a few days just to get in under the wire. It's not going to make a big difference in Israel, but Netanyahu has already moved to claim credit for it, and and so I think there is a big um, push by the opponents of Israel to take take advantage of the election, and by the friends of Netanyahu to try to give him as many uh, brownie points with the Israeli public uh, to bolster his re-election as possible, and his his. Um, uh, campaign slogan is in another league or in a league of his own and a different league mm-hmm. I guess you'd say and I think the idea is well, all these guys like all these generals running against him and whatnot they, they're fine they're patriotic they're good people but Netanyahu is the one according to his campaign who who operates on an international level who can deliver the Americans on this very old claim on Golan that nobody thought was going to be recognized who can get a remains from Syria via mm-hmm. Russia from 30 years ago who can do all this, you know, kind of political magic just because he's in a different category than other Israeli politicians. And, and I think Trump and Putin have both helped him out a lot on that. And, um, you know, it looks to me like uh, he's in a very good shape going into this vote. Even if he doesn't win, he still probably has the best shot of making a coalition government, mm-hmm. which has more to do with what the number of votes in the Knesset you can put together rather than how many you win outright. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, all of this support has been crucial in getting him, uh, you know, to survive under conditions of great difficulty because he's got very serious opponents, He's he's got a lot of legal problems, political problems, and he's just been there forever. And, you know, there's Netanyahu fatigue also. Yeah. There's a sense that, look, it's time for him to go. But... He also, as you say, he's been very careful to play to his base, to, to say a lot of you know, racist things about the other side in the Israeli election, maybe teaming up with some marginal Arab parties, and ooh, that's very bad. And now to promise the annexation of land in the West Bank, uh, this is probably not something he intends to do. Uh, he, he's a very cautious man. He's the Mr. Status Quo guy. And I think the uh, the refusal to get sucked into a war in Gaza is much more typical of him than annexing anything. All the annexations that Trump is recognizing, go back to, uh, 81, 82, 83. Netanyahu doesn't do that. He yeah. does cautious stuff. So I'd be surprised if he started annexing things. But he might do something small, like extend Israeli law into the biggest settlement, which is called Male Adumim. And they would say, well, no one expects you know Israel to give this up and the Palestinians don't really want it in a Palestinian state and it's not really that big a deal and the sky won't fall. Mm-hmm. And then you'll find that once that's a a precedent it becomes almost impossible for israeli leaders to stop annexing settlements and yeah. because the logic will be there Well, and, the, log- uh, the logic's
0: already there in some ways that the settlements there. exist anyway and continue to expand exactly. yeah
1: well and now the the annexation of jerusalem is endorsed by the united states the annexation of golan is is annexed by the united states my first reaction to the uh, Golan recognition thing was well, I mean, if you're in Israeli, you would hop to it and start annexing the parts of the West Bank you really want because right. obviously that's how you, if you want it, annex it and it'll be yours. Currently, right. that's that's the incentive structure.
0: You um you may not be able to speak to this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask the question, and if, sure. if you uh, if you can't, just say you can't. Um, most people would consider me an evangelical. I'm Southern Baptist pastor and run, yeah. have run in those circles forever. And there's just a lot of the decisions that have been made um, regarding Israel, the the moving of the embassy, um, the affirmation of the annexation of the Golan Heights, and those kinds of things that do have a uh, they have a philosophical home in a certain stream of evangelical thought. Right. Um, Absolutely. Do you see that connection with like his uh, uh, President Trump's evangelical advisory council or people that are around him
1: very strongly? I think it's the main force in the Republican Party uh, that, that is responsible for the, uh, the, the way in which Trump is deviating from traditional ways of being supportive of Israel. I think it's, it's true that being supportive of Israel is traditional and bipartisan, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and Republicans and Democrats are, are united on that. But there are ways in which the Trump administration is being supportive of Israel that are not typical. They're they're very different than Obama or George W. Bush or Reagan or Clinton or any of his predecessors, Mm -hmm. uh, right or left. And they, I think, tend to go into being supportive of greater Israel, supportive of the expansionist Israeli state, uh, rather than Supportive of Israel in its internationally recognized borders, uh, and and that's very very different. And there, I think the big push for that, especially among Republicans, but even in general, comes mostly from uh, parts of the event, the organized evangelical Christian community. The, the the types of groups like KUFI of John Hagee and other uh, organizations like that that I've certainly dealt with in the past who. I wouldn't even call them, some of them like to call themselves Christian Zionists. I don't think they're Zionists at all. Hmm. Uh, I think they're fans of greater Israel, but not necessarily fans of Israel Israel. And they seem to be very attached to the possible long-term consequences of, uh, of, of a greater Israel campaign, perhaps Religiously, eschatologically, cosmologically—you know—and all that stuff. Like, what does this signify in terms of the uh, the final disposition of the universe, or something? The point is, though, that that um, it's not—they're not interested the way APAC is in having the U.S. government be supportive of the Israeli government, whatever the Israelis decide to do. Uh, they were very angry with Ariel Sharon when he uh, made a unilateral disengagement from Gaza Strip and the the Northern West Bank. Mm -hmm. They they were very condemnatory of him. And when Sharon had a stroke, some of these uh, pastors said that it was God punishing him. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that talk before.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So so my point is that that's not being supportive of Israel. That's being supportive of greater Israel, which is uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's completely different, but it's it's a different emphasis. And there, I think uh, you see the hand of, of certain parts of, of organized uh, evangelical uh, community more than others. And I think there's a different language among the Jewish groups or the labor groups, the kind of pro-Israel voices that are mostly in the Democratic Party, just have a, a different um, set of priorities when yeah. it comes to being pro israel than the groups you're talking about. And I don't think President Trump gets much support from any of those groups. There are a few important wealthy Jewish donors uh, who are Republicans reliably Republican, Sheldon Adelson with sure. his 20 million. That's significant. You know, there are there are others, obviously. Um, we just had that big conference of Jewish Republicans, which is yes, it's there's some money attached to mm-hmm. that. But most Jews are Democrats. Yeah. And it's still the case that the APAC language is still more a democratic centrist language. But when you get into pro Israel discourse among Republicans, certainly in the administration, the point person on being pro Israel in terms of the annexations and, and whatnot is not Jared Kushner or Jason Greenblatt or David Friedman, the two uh, lawyers from the Trump organization who are involved in Israel policy. But it's Mike Pence. Mm. Mike Pence was the one who rolled out the uh, recognition of Jerusalem. And the way it was written, the language in which it was written really did, I think, reflect the appeal that that move has for a certain wing of the, if I could call it the cultural conservatives mm-hmm. within the Republican Party, a lot of them religious evangelicals. And it's again, it's a wing of wing. But yeah, I see it very strongly. And I feel very comfortable talking about this. <laughs> I've written about it quite a lot.
0: <laughs> I'm talking to Hussein Ibish about uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East. And we'll be yeah. right back after this. So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash UncommentaryPod. That's paypal.me slash UncommentaryPod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com slash Uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget. The third way is by using my Amazon shop. So that's amazon.com slash shop slash Marty Duran. amazon.com slash shop slash Marty. Marty Duran. Most of the books from the authors that I have interviewed are there, as well as some that I just recommend for your reading pleasure. Uh, you get the same low Amazon price, and it generates a commission to me, which helps support Uncommentary. So I hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because I couldn't do it without you. Now, back to this episode of Uncommentary. And we're back uh, talking to Hussein Ibish about uh, Middle East politics and foreign policy from the American perspective. And so, um, Syria is, uh, I, I mean, I have tried my best to figure out what's going on there. And it's like the melting pot of everybody who wants to be in a war right. uh, showed up at the same spot and started shooting. Um, can, yes, you, right. can you kind of give a little just the, you know, the thumbnail of how we got where we are and now what's going on?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but sure. The, I mean, the basic reality is that what you have in Syria is a double whammy of you have a a typical kind of Arab dictatorship and the the Arab dictatorships, that is, to say, the republics. Now, the monarchies are a little different, apparently having a king and having that kind of feudal structure gives a little bit more stability because even where there isn't money like as you would say in the gulf well there's money in like kuwait saudi arabia qatar the uae and so of course they're not going to have a revolution but it's it's been true of morocco and and um, jordan as well so there is there is more stability in the monarchies for whatever reason but the arab republics really are rotten uh Mm -hmm. to the core there's something profoundly wrong with the, with the political culture, there is a, a kind of a deep cancer in the Arab Republics, and it may, may prove to be there in the monarchies too, but you know there aren't any examples of it yet. But the Arab Republics all kind of either teetered or collapsed around 2010, 2011, 2012. And in Syria, the other side of it, not only was there this unaccountable, aloof, incompetent dicta- mafia-like dictatorship, which there was, but, in addition to that, it was a uh, 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 an ethnic of religion, not ethnic but a religious minority dominated group the alawites alawite uh, religious sect is a kind of a a version of Islam with some Catholicism mixed in oh, like wow. Shiism and Catholicism mixed together i mean it's it's a it's a strange little uh group, but they you know um there are a bunch of these in the middle east and A lot of them have been very persecuted over the years. So they've become very insular, very tightly knit, very strongly together. During the the French colonial era and the first half of the 20th century, they got very strongly in with the uh, colonial regime and they became very powerful within the army. Mm. And so when you got into in the 60s and 70s and, and 50s, even in this period of military coups, this little religious group slowly accrued the power to itself and under Hafez al-Assad and now the, the, the current dictator of Syria, Bashar Assad, who's his son, you have a, uh, what is a very strongly uh, Alawite sectarian government. So that's a big factor. Now it's not just Alawites, it, it, they're strongly supported by a lot of Christians, by a lot of Sunni Muslims in the cities. Uh, and by others. Um, Druze certainly, uh, they they have their support. And mm-hmm. you know when when the revolution began, they worked very hard to make sure that the other side would be dominated by uh, terrorists, by al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda like groups, or oh, then yeah. ISIS. And in fact, al-Assad at the beginning, back in two thousand and eleven, when the uprising, which began as a kind of um, unarmed, peaceful, Pro democracy uh, demonstrations in a northern city called derizora and a southern city called Dera. Yeah, is that,
0: uh, Let me pause right there. Is that where um, a lot of the uh, rural, the farmers and whatever, had come in because of the drought and they were seeking some relief? And then things kind of yeah, spiral from there.
1: They, yes, okay. uh, especially in the north. But yes, yeah, in the south too. That's right. And. Um, there were other problems. These are generally restive areas. They're not the main. They're concentrations of people, but they're not the kind of privileged people of Damascus, Aleppo, Homs, and Hama, like the big cities where people get what they need. These are like minor cities, which were marginal and kind of um, ignored and mm. underserved. And so they started protesting for democracy, and they were met with brute force. Mm. And the government immediately started talking about an invasion of Syria by foreign terrorists al-qaeda basically terrorists and it wasn't true but over the years It became true. (laughs) They worked very hard to make it true. Because, you know, who wants to live under a mafia state? Well, only people who think the only alternative is al-Qaeda state. Mm -hmm. You know, where you might think, well, you know, the mob is not that bad. I mean, who can make the mob look okay? It's probably al-Qaeda, right? So so if that's your choice, you might actually uh, either go with the mob or just sit it out. And... um, What, what ended up happening was, though, there there was a mixture of, of decent uh, rebels, nationalist rebels, former army units that defected, and things that were kind of supported by the United States, by Jordan, by the UAE, and then more extreme groups that ultimately ended up getting either on their own or supported by Turkey and Qatar. Uh, and... What what ended up happening is we the UAE just decided to not really get involved in the organized violence game and, you know, didn't ever really give. We we decided also under Obama, we just moved away from this whole issue as quickly as possible. And the field was left to two forces. One was the regime and its international supporters who were very powerful and very insistent on that government winning. Mm-hmm. And then the more extreme rebels who won at every turn and and whether it was ISIS on one side or a kind of Al-Qaeda on the other side. A- and that's really what it came down to. And the the decent rebels were more and more marginalized. And then the turning point was in the summer of 2015, it looked like the regime was going to fall. And this is what the Iranians concluded. They're very close to the Syrian regime. They had tried to intervene. They brought Hezbollah in from Lebanon to intervene. But they became convinced that the government had a very good chance of being overthrown within the next 12 months. Mm. And the uh, head of the Iranian regional expeditionary forces generally. His name is Qasim Soleimani. He's the head of the Quds Force, which means the Jerusalem force of the IRGC, which is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's basically the the network of militia and terrorist groups that Iran runs in, in the Middle East and their own fighters for expeditions. He went to Moscow and he told the Russians, look, here are the maps. Here's what's happening. If we don't intervene together, this is going down. And so they made an agreement to uh, intervene militarily and they had a joint surge uh, with Hezbollah, uh, Iranian forces and militias, uh, whether it's Iranians or Afghans, Pakistanis and others surging on the ground, Russia surging in the air with air forces, with drones, with with bombs and with intelligence and all that stuff. And together they flipped the momentum completely. And by the end of 2016, the government won. Uh, Aleppo was the turning point. The, the rebel-held half of Aleppo fell to pro-regime forces, and the war was in effect over. Wow. So what you're looking at now is kind of the post-war era. In the meanwhile, the other thing that needed, ha- needed doing was the defeat of ISIS. Everybody, even Al-Qaeda, wanted right. ISIS to go. <laughs> and so ev- once everyone decided, that's it, we're done with you guys— First they were crushed in Iraq, then they were crushed in Syria. And now you've got a post-war situation because the government has basically won in most of the country. ISIS is driven, it's not defeated, but it's driven into the shadows mm-hmm. It no longer controls any cities or big towns. And uh, also we've really decided to cede the playing field to Russia on, uh, at the big picture and Iran and Hezbollah on the ground. and so. You know, there's a lot of moving parts here, but basically what's happened is a lot of the enemies of the United States have, have done really well for themselves. Russia is back in the Middle East as mm-hmm. a major force. Uh, the Israelis are scrambling to protect their interests. The Gulf countries are trying to, uh, you know, the UAE just reopened its embassy in uh, in Syria, in Damascus, and is trying to, you know, use money and political influence to regain It's leverage. And a lot of people are talking to the Turks and the Russians to try to figure out a way of stopping Iran from being the big winner here. Because right now, uh, unless others join forces to kind of squeeze the Iranians out a little, they're the big, big winners here. And that's probably not in everybody's interest. So there's a lot of um, careful negotiations about that. But that's basically what it is. The government has won. Because its international supporters came to its rescue, and the and enemies of the government let that happen and didn't do anything. Uh,
0: you've mentioned a couple of groups: um, Hezbollah and uh, the Iranian Re- Revolutionary Guard. Um,
1: Revolutionary Guards, yeah,
0: and. Um, I've heard you know, most of my – well, not so much about the Revolutionary Guard because I guess they've just been designated as a terrorist group or about to be designated today. as a terrorist group. No,
1: they were. They were designated a terrorist group okay. today.
0: So when I was growing up, I always understood that a the terrorist organization was a non-state actor uh, yeah. that uh, – that utilized violence as a means of making uh, of gaining political ends. So they didn't have an army, right. they didn't have an air force, they didn't have any. So they right. either did suicide bombings or they did bombings right. um, to but reach a political goal or assassinations. Assassination. Absolutely.
1: Right. Yeah, low into what they call low intensity warfare. Yes. Yeah, asymmetrical
0: warfare. But and it was often against uh, civilians because that was the targets right. that they had the easiest access to.
1: That's right. So um, Soft.
0: But Hezbollah uh, is not. To my knowledge, and you, this, I'm asking you so you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Hezbollah is not like what we think of with the PLO in the '70s. Uh, aren't no, they like officially re- like part of the government? Boy,
1: of... oh, it's really complicated. Okay, okay so Hez- let's let's start off with what they are. Hezbollah is the biggest it's the main political group of the Lebanese Shiites and Lebanon has no majority. It's a bunch of minorities. The biggest single group is the Shiites, but they're not more than 35% of the population, maybe 40%. So it's a country of minorities and uh, the state is fractured. And uh, during the civil war in the seventies, eighties and into the early, well, ending around 1990, uh, everybody, basically needed their own little army to protect their areas. And in following Israel's invasion of Lebanon against the aforementioned PLO in, 19, in uh, 1982, um, the Iranians who were freshly revolutionary, that, that the revolution was in '79, were looking to expand their influence and looking to establish like-minded organizations among other Shiites in, in Shiites in the Arab world in particular did an experiment with setting up a, uh, a an ideologically affiliated militia in, in Lebanon called Hezbollah, which means party of God, if mm. you have anything, believe it or not. And um, <laughs> this uh, group was really initially uh, very much just a hybrid of a, a terrorist group in the way you've described a terrorist group and also a local Lebanese sectarian militia. Of okay. which there was probably a dozen. Now, what's happened over the years is it's it first it has long since been the dominant political force among the Lebanese Shiites, and therefore a prominent part of the Lebanese political scene. And since Lebanon has no majority, and has, frequently its political figures are part of the government, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one thing that the Europeans have done, and it, 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 formally, and the, the U.S. has done informally, but it's it's really there's almost no way around this in a way, is to regard the military wing of Hezbollah as terrorist, illegitimate, or at least not not acceptable, and the political wing, like the ministers from Hezbollah in the in the Lebanese cabinets, mm-hmm. as as acceptable maybe with hands off. Now the American position has been something a little bit more subtle where we just say, We will deal with the Lebanese government, but we won't deal with the Hezbollah ministers in the Lebanese government So if there's a minister of tourism from Hezbollah, we don't talk to that guy, you know, but we'll talk to all his colleagues We'll talk to all the other people and it's been this really weird thing What's happened over the years though is that Hezbollah has morphed, right? So it's become more and more of a conventional force The last Israeli Hezbollah war in 2006 was a big shock to the Israelis because they found that Hezbollah's capabilities had really grown mm-hmm. to far beyond what they thought it had been and what they were used to. And they found that Hezbollah was kind of now a hybrid of a sort of uh, an irregular, low-intensity, asymmetrical warfare group of the kind you were just describing, mm-hmm. right? A kind of terrorist group or militia, if you want to put it that way, however you want to put it, Um You know, on the one hand, and also a much more conventional military, in the sense that when they when they thought they needed to and thought they could, they were capable of taking and holding territory, Mm -hmm. which guerrillas don't do. Right, by definition, they don't do that. They they hit and run and hit and run and hit and run. They don't really hold acquire and hold territory, but Hezbollah did do that in 06. They also had much better, like, missile technology than the Israelis thought. It was quite a shock to the Israelis. Now, there's a much bigger change, because in the Syrian war, Hezbollah has grown and expanded and become far more uh, formidable than it used to be. Uh, the Iranians have put a lot of money into that organization. They've expanded. They've gotten much bigger. Now they exist in two countries, right? on the ground, In Lebanon and in Syria. Oh, and it's become that. almost okay. possible to talk about the Syrian wing of Hezbollah. Not that they're Syrians. They're mm-hmm. all Lebanese. But mm-hmm. But those who are primarily based in Syria. And their interests haven't started diverging yet in a major way. But you could see how they could. So that's really interesting. The other thing is that... Uh, Two other things. One is it's become like a transnational actor in the sense that wherever the pro-Iranian militias or terrorist groups are operating, you'll find Hezbollah there in the vanguard, like as trainers, as as advice givers, as people who. So like, for example, in Yemen, where uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Yemeni government are fighting the Houthi rebels who are different kinds of Shiites, but they're still supported by Iran. Iran's been giving them these rockets, which they've been firing at Saudi cities and and causing a lot of chaos. I mean, look, the Houthis don't know how to fire those rockets. (laughs) The Houthis don't know. Seriously, it is 100% sure that it's Hezbollah people sent from Lebanon, experts in, in munitions, who are either doing the firing or teaching at least the Houthis how to deal with these rockets. There's just no question about it. And in fact, when you when you look into it, Hezbollah has lost at least 30, 40 people in Yemen. And I, that's not because they were there on vacation or as right, tourists. Right. No, they were there fighting. And you, you say similar things in Bahrain. And a bunch of Hezbollah people recently uh, arrested in Morocco. And no one can quite figure out exactly what they were doing there. Maybe something in the Western Sahara. Maybe who knows. But the point is, now they're just cropping up this you know, I mean, this group was founded in the early '80s. They've become very, very, very good at what they do, and uh, so they're all over the Middle East, wherever their expertise is needed. And then the, the last thing that's happened is their capabilities have expanded even more. So that, for example, in the twenty uh, in the two thousand six war, they had about thirty thousand rockets, and now they have at least one hundred and fifty thousand wow. rockets. So for, from the Israeli point of view, uh, that's a very big. Uh, change. And th- again, those rockets are, uh, are better, more accurate, longer range, uh, generally, and the people who are firing them are more skilled and the technology is better. And they're now part of a more solidified international al- uh, uh, alliance led by Iran with uh, a, um, a global backer, Russia, which is a regional power the way it wasn't then. It was kind of out of it. And and now they're back. So all of that, I think, maybe helps to explain in a way how important Hezbollah is. And basically, it's Iran's trump card at this point. Without Hezbollah, Iran would be infinitely less regionally capable. It wouldn't change Iran's ability to defend itself or fight a war over Iranian territory. But... Hezbollah is the key Iranian asset for operating in the Arab world. And it's not just in Lebanon. It's in Syria, in Bahrain, in Yemen, etc. Hezbollah is is the Iranian cat's paw all over the Arab world. Wow. No question. Yeah.
0: So what is uh, what is the, the next big thing? What's the thing that Americans need to watch for uh, in the Middle East in the coming days and weeks?
1: Well... Wow, that's a good question. I mean, the most interesting thing will be the Israeli election uh, in days and weeks. In days and weeks, you know, that's the main thing that will happen. So we'll fi- also, we'll find out what the administration has been planning vis-a-vis um, Palestinian-Israeli peace, because Jared Kushner has been working on a plan for a couple of years now. yeah. And they've been making a big deal out of it. But the whole time, there's been this kind of political war uh, with the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, And so we've set up a situation where we don't know what they're going to say, but whatever they say, it's now politically impossible for Palestinian leaders to say yes and get away with it politically because we have cut off all ties. We closed their mission here in Washington, Mm -hmm. uh, shut down our mission in East Jerusalem, merged it with the embassy recognized uh, Israeli sovereignty in all of Jerusalem, moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognized Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights.
0: Close USAID uh, offices et in the West Bank.
1: Yeah, etc., etc. So cetera. And, and we support absolutely nothing. So there's this total shutdown of relations with the Palestinians. It's complete. And, uh, you know, they have domestic politics there. They have their own politics. Right, and right. It's, just, it's not possible for them. Uh, my advice to them, I think a year and a half ago or a year ago, I wrote several columns saying whatever you do, don't say no. Whatever Kushner puts on the table, do not say no. Say yes, but. Mm-hmm. That's what the Israelis always say. That's the intelligent reaction. You know, in any civilized discourse, you do not say no because you don't want to be the one who said no. You say yes, but. And, and after the but, you can put all your right. key interests in and then say, but we're not saying no. You know, and now I I recognize that no one can say yes, but at this point and Mm -hmm. and retain their political viability among Palestinians. It's just not possible. But let's see what the what the proposition is. It's reported to be 50 pages long. This is going to be very, very detailed. And uh, I have no idea what they're thinking about. It doesn't look like it's probably going to resemble much of the old two-state solution. So that's another complication mm-hmm. because everyone's proceeded on that basis. Uh, anyway, that'll be very interesting. So The Israeli election, the peace process will be very interesting. There's a really interesting ha- thing happening right now in Libya, believe it or not. I can believe where. You. Yeah, the, the Libyan war has been this kind of weird back and forth between these two. Uh, these rival groups, and they, they've tended to have these battles where one side just kind of overruns the other or the other side runs away. I mean, there usually aren't a lot of casualties, <laughs> you know? No, seriously. It's, it's like, like these pitched battles where, like, one person dies. I mean, it, it's, it's, quite, it's kind of amazing. Hmm. Uh, it's almost like a Kabuki war. You know, it's all for show. Yeah. But something big is happening for the first time in, in a couple of years. This guy, General Haftar, who leads the anti-Islamist nationalistic Libyan National Army group, which uh, rules in uh, Benghazi, took Benghazi, he used, used to be in Tobruk. Then he took Benghazi. Then he moved south and took a lot of the south. And now he's making a – and and he took the oil fields from this other guy, Jadran. So he's kind of on a roll. And he's making an all-out assault on Libya. And 35 people have died so far in fighting over over Tripoli, excuse me, over Tripoli, the capital. And 35 people have died, which is, you know, I mean – in a war, it doesn't sound that many, but trust me, Libya has not been a war that has produced a lot of casualties recently, mm-hmm. right? As I as I say, the big battles are just kind of yeah. like for show in a way. But this is a big deal. And he seems to be, this is the culmination of a five-year plan for basically for taking over the country. And it's going to be very interesting to see if he can do that. I mean, every intelligent analysis that I can see and come up with in all of my own thinking is to say that he's just positioning himself for these talks that are supposed to begin and is a big show and it's all politics and it's for TV. But actually, it is possible because he's a very good politician and he did take over Benghazi and he did take over the South. It's not out of the question. It's just very hard to know what his plan is. And, you know, at this point, I can't just shrug him off just because it looks, it sounds like he shouldn't have the power to do this because I didn't think he'd be able to take over Benghazi either, but he did. So it's possible that we could be seeing a kind of end game in Libya. Most likely all that's happening is the decks being shuffled and we're going to keep on playing this sick, crazy game uh, that they've been playing since Gaddafi was overthrown uh, about um, seven years ago. But, you know, there is... Something's happening, and, and it's a big deal, and, and that's worth keeping an eye on. And then finally, I would say over the next year or or so, look at two other things. One is look at the rise of Turkey. Turkey has become a full-fledged player in the Middle East mm-hmm. now for the first time since 100 years. They've given up on Europe. They've turned their eyes south and east completely, and they're thinking nationally now about reclaiming their their role of primacy and thinking themselves, well, we're not going to be led into Europe. And we really are this kind of, you know, they're Islamic again, and they're interested in all this stuff. And why shouldn't they be the leaders? Why should Iran, this group of weird Shiites, be the leader? So is they this going to be, be
0: some kind of leaders. Ottoman 2.0?
1: That's the idea. I wow. think that really is the idea. And they say they say, look, right now the Middle East has been this competition between these Saudis who are these kind of weird Beverly Hillbillies guys with Mm -hmm. all this money, and these crazy Iranian heretics who have this very strange wrong version of Islam versus these wackadoodle rural people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it should be us. We're the traditional leaders. We are the the right kind of Islam. We're not this strange Persian heresy. We're also not these, you know, like Bedouins. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have this great tradition behind us. And we don't need to win the lottery, the oil lottery, and we don't need to cop a crazy revolutionary attitude like the Iranians did. So we are the natural people, and we're in NATO, and we're good friends of the United States, and we have, you know, yeah, we're not going to be part of Europe, but we, you know, we came close, right. and that kind of. Stuff. So they want to be the bosses again. It's very, very interesting. They have um, an alliance with Qatar, with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, countries with Sudan. Increasingly, they're they're coming out of their shell. It's worth watching. And the final thing is the big struggle over Syria and Iraq. Syria and Iraq are both in totally different ways coming into their post-war, post-ISIS moments. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a lot of jockeying on the ground politically in terms of reconstruction, in terms of influences, militias in those countries. There's, you know, everything's up in the air there. And I think it's very worth watching the little things that happen in Syria and Iraq. And they're going to be very different. Um, And that's, I think, some of where the biggest action is. And as I say, it's going to be now in both countries, which have been, you know, very blood soaked Mm. in recent years, it's going to be more political and financial. But that may be even mean that the competition Mm. is fiercer because now you can't shoot your way into authority. You actually have to, like, win friends and hearts and minds. people, Well, it becomes harder in a way for the Iranians because in a war situation that that placed all their strengths—the militias and the subversion and the non-state groups and Hezbollah—and that's great for the wars, chaos and total disorder plays right into the Iranian hands. Hmm. The war is over, whether it's the, the civil wars in Iraq and Syria or the ISIS war or anything, and it calms down. That starts playing more to the strengths of more orderly countries. Mm-hmm whether it's Turkey on the one hand or the Saudis, the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis on the other hand, and of course the United States. And I, I think, you know, in Iraq, the, the Iranians are in real trouble. And let me just point out one thing. The the first audience for the listing of the IRGC of Iran, the, the Revolutionary Guards, as a terrorist group, the number one audience for that is the Iraqi government, because the Iraqi and Iranian economies are completely intertwined and we're basically saying to the Iraqis look get away from those Iranians because there's this effort to put all these sanctions on Iran and the Iraqis keep saying we're not going to be part of that we don't want anything to do with that we're not going to join you in that and the counter message and that they formally said that like two months ago this in among many other things is a counter message from Washington to Baghdad which is oh really well, how about if we turn most of your business or a lot of your business partners into listed terrorists? How you wow. like that? Hmm. And it's a very pointed message to them. To say, look, you got to pick. You can't do equally business with us and our Arab friends on the one hand and with Iran and Hezbollah and all these guys on the other hand. No, we don't. That's not the way we roll right now.
0: Wow. There's a lot of stuff going on. Hussein, where can people find you online?
1: Well, I, there's an archive of my work at a, uh, a little site called Ibish Blog, and I'm a weekly columnist for Bloomberg. So you can look for my articles every week on uh, Bloomberg View, v- Bloomberg Opinion. I also write a weekly column for The National, which is a paper in uh, the UAE, an English language paper for the UAE. And finally, my main gig here at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, where a lot of my stuff is, is uh, published, it's A-G-S-I-W, agsiw.org. Excellent. So, and you're you on Twitter, is of, it? Uh, you can also just uh, Google my name. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and Twitter, right? At ibishblog.com or at ibishblog. Excuse me. Yeah. That's that. I was mixing up Twitter and HTML. Well, that's Ibbishblog.
0: what we we old guys can do. That though, you know.
1: Yeah, I do it all the <laughs> time. And I used to be on Facebook, but I cut my Facebook um, account altogether. Yeah.
0: Well, Hussein, thanks so much for joining me on Uncommentary yeah, today.
1: Pleasure. Anytime. I'm, I hope I didn't confuse everybody too much. It's a, it's a, lot, a lot of um, swampy stuff.
0: Well, that's there exactly you. why we'll have to have you back.
1: Oh, sure. Anytime. Happy awesome. to do it.
0: Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, Mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that would be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. It um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost to 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that will be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary, financially uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me/ uncommentary pod that's paypal.me/ uncommentary pod if you'd like to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month swag level three bucks a month you can do that at patreon patreon.com/uncommentary that's patreon.com/ uncommentary now if you'd like to advertise and I can always use advertisers then email me marty at yahoo.com and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod, and tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria.